Well, dear ones, I'd like to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that you were supposed to have a guest speaker here today, but because of circumstances, he could not be here. So guess what? You get me today. (laughs) Bunch of jokers. (laughs) In Isaiah chapter 6, this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they were covering their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, their doorposts and the threshold shook, and a temple was filled with smoke. And I cried out and say, Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And then one of the Sarahs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my lips, and he said, See, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Well, Father, I just want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to share. This is my prayer, is that these, your beloved, would not necessarily see Jim Lowe speaking, but my prayer is that they would see you speaking through me. And I pray this in your name. Amen. I need to explain to you a little bit as to what's happening in Isaiah chapter 6, is that we begin to realize that a time of transition is taking place in the land. We need to understand that Isaiah, he is a prophet of the Lord. As a prophet of the Lord, he began prophesying when he was around 18 years old. In fact, the Bible tells me in Isaiah chapter 1 that Isaiah's father was a man by the name of Amos. Again, different interpreters have different ideas as to what kind of profession this person had, but there are some commentaries who believe that his father came from royalty. Again, I'm not sure what that says to you, but what it tells me is that Isaiah probably had some of the greatest advantages that a person could ever wish for. It tells me that Isaiah probably lived in some of the nicest homes that a person could ever wish to live in. It tells me that Isaiah probably had some of the nicest clothing that a person could ever want to wear. It tells me that Isaiah probably had some of the best educators to train him that a person could ever want. It tells me that Isaiah probably also had some of the neatest foods that a person could ever want to eat, and so he had wonderful privileges inside his life. But as you and I, though, enter into Isaiah chapter 6, we begin to realize that a transition is ready to take place. We're told very quickly that Isaiah, that he prophesied during the reigns of four different kings. We're told that he prophesied during the reign of King Uzziah, and then Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. But then in Isaiah chapter 6, after reigning for 52 years, the Bible tells us that Uzziah dies. And because he dies, the people in the land then begin going through a time of melancholy, a time of grieving, wondering what does the future now hold for them. Well, one of those individuals, I was also feeling this way, even though Isaiah should have been focused upon the Lord, Isaiah began to realize that his heart was also grieving deeply because they were wondering, and he was wondering, what does the future hold for Judah now? Because you need to understand that under Uzziah, after 52 years, the land was going through a time of material prosperity. And now the people wondered, will we continue to enjoy the comforts of life that we've been experiencing for so many years? I can picture inside my mind that Isaiah, he begins walking around, walking around, trying to get rid of the grief that's upon his heart. 
he begins to think to himself, what would happen if I come along and if I come and associate with some of my friends? Maybe they can help alleviate the pain that I'm feeling in my life. And so he begins to fellowship with those that are around him. But Isaiah begins to quickly understand that there is sometimes a sorrow in our hearts that is so deep that no human being can come along and help to relieve it. And so even though he doesn't find any relief, he continues to walk. And as he's walking, I picture him then coming closer and closer to the temple of the Lord. As he arrives to the temple, I can picture then Isaiah sitting himself, going inside and sitting himself in a corner of the temple, understanding it's nothing like the sanctuary you and I are worshiping right now. There were no lights like this. There were no seats for people to sit upon. But he rests his body in one of the corners of the temple. I can picture inside my mind that Isaiah, he comes and he buries his face into his hands. And I can picture his shoulders going up and down because he's grieving so hard. Tears are rolling down his face. And as he's looking downward, something happens. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. I'm going to share with you four things that takes place within the temple of the Lord that changes Isaiah's life forever. That I'm going to be talking about the vision that Isaiah had. After I talk about the vision, I'm going to talk about his confession. After I talk about his confession, I'm going to talk about his consecration. And then only lastly, am I going to talk about the mission of being a person who is willing to reach out for the Lord God. And so I want you to enter back into the scene with me. That there Isaiah is. He's seated there in the darkness of the temple, his face buried in his hands. He's crying. And then as he's looking downward, he senses a pressure, something come upon him and says, Isaiah, I don't want you to look downwards anymore, but I want you to look heavenwards. And I can picture Isaiah looking heavenward. And as he looks heavenward inside the temple, he notices that there's a whiff of cloud that's up there. And he's never seen something like this before. So he strains his eyes to see what's happening. And as he's looking... He begins to realize that that whiff of cloud is beginning to take form. And so he strains his eyes again to see what's happening up there. And as he's looking, he notices that that cloud, that whiff, that mist is taking the shape of a chair. But as he looks, he begins to realize that it is no ordinary chair, but it looks like a throne. And before long, he begins to notice that there's a person that's seated upon that throne. And as he looks harder, and as the vision becomes more crystal clear, he begins to realize that it is no ordinary person that's seated upon a throne, but it is Adonai, it is Jesus Christ himself. Now, dear ones, I'm not sure what that says to you, but this is what I believe that it was saying to Isaiah. That for Isaiah was saying that even though the earthly king had died, the reality is that the king of kings, he is still alive. And so there he is. He's looking at the cloud. He's looking at the vision that is before him. Well, I can understand a little bit of what Isaiah is talking about because sometimes the earthly kings in our lives need to be removed before we can truly see the king of kings. Let me try to explain this with some illustrations. In 1993, South Africa was going through a time of transition. They didn't, it was a time where a black man for the first time was going to be in charge of the country. No one knew whether it was going to be Butelezi or whether it was going to be Mandela, but they knew that a black man was going to be in charge of the country. If you went into the African townships, you would have noticed that the people there, the black Africans, were so excited. They were jumping around, they were dancing all over the place. But there was a group of individuals that were very sad about the possibility of a black man being in charge of the country. It was the Europeans. It was the white population. 
Well, during that time, my responsibility as a missionary was to go and visit churches. And so one of the things I like to do sometimes is I believe that it's all right for us to get excited for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so I would go into places sometimes and say, hey, we can be excited because of what Jesus Christ is doing. I can remember talking to pastors and saying, hey, pastor, talk to me. How are things going? He would look at me, the white pastor would say, well, Jim, you need to know things aren't going well at all. We're so depressed that a black man's going to be in charge of the country. Now, you need to know we have done no evangelism at all. But again, as I shared, when I went to churches, I would have opportunities to preach, and I would preach messages that would go like this. For me, it doesn't matter whether a black man's in charge of the country. It doesn't matter if it is a white person. It doesn't matter if it is a green person or a polka-dotted person. But I thought to myself, if a yellow Chinese was in charge of the country, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. But the message I shared with them is this is the fact that it doesn't matter who becomes in charge of the country because the reality is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our focus still needs to be upon Jesus Christ who sits upon a throne high and exalted and lifted up. Amen? Amen. Well, that was kind of weak. <laughs> that was kind of phony. <laughs> One of the things I enjoy doing is I love teaching. And so when I was in Africa, I was involved in a program of going out to pastors where they were, training them inside the churches to equip them to become better pastors. And so on a, during the week, I get a phone call, and a black African pastor from the township of Foss Loris comes and says, Umfudi, see Jim, we'd love for you to come and teach. Man, I love to teach. So I said, sure, I'll be there Saturday morning. Man, I tell you what, all week long, I poured over my books. All week long, I'm getting more and more excited about the possibility of being able to teach Saturday morning, I get into my car. Now, dear ones, you need to know something about Jim Lowe. That being Chinese, I've been taught to be very stoic, to be very calm, not to show necessarily a lot of emotions. But you get me in a car by myself. I'll come along and put in a tape or a CD, and if music is playing, if you're driving behind me, can I share? You're going to see the car rocking back and forth. <laughs> Man, I get so excited with the Lord. I'm a daydreamer, so you better get off the road as well because I don't pay much attention. And so here I am, I'm going down the road, entering into false Loris. I should have realized I was getting into trouble because I should have noticed that there were, there were smoke going heavenward. But again, I am a daydreamer. And so I kept moving forward into false Loris. As I kept going forward, I should have realized I was getting into trouble because I should have noticed that the smoke was coming from homes that had been set on fire because of the Africans in the townships being upset about something. But again, I'm a daydreamer. I should have realized I was getting into trouble because all strewn over the roads were little rocks. Again, I'm a daydreamer. By the time I began paying attention as to where I was going, I was at a place on the road where great big boulders had been rolled upon it. And so because I'd already passed some of the boulders, there was no ways for me to make a U-turn. And as I looked ahead of me, there were around two to 300 young African men and women ahead of me carrying weapons of destruction, clubs, axes, whips. I couldn't make a U-turn, so I slowed my car down. And as I slowed my car down, I came to where the group was. They converged around the car. They came along, and they made their hands into fists, and they began to pound the top of the car, the car, and they began to make statements like this. Hey, white man, get out of the car. That was a shock. I have never been called a white man. <laughs> All I could think to myself was, what an insult. <laughs> <laughs> I got out of the car. 
And as I got out of the car, they began making demands of me, and they said, hey, white man, we want you to give us some money. I went into my back pocket, took out my wallet. All I had was a two-rand note. A two-rand note at that time only translated to around 75 cents American currency, and I knew that 75 cents would not make a crowd of two to 300 people very happy. So they came along and said, hey, white man, we want you to give us some cigarettes. Now understand, I'm a Wesleyan pastor. I didn't have any cigarettes. Someone then came along and said, he has no money, he has no cigarettes, let's kill the white man. You need to know back then that was no idle threat because they would. They did what was called necklacing. Anyone that was not supposed to be in a township, they would come along and take a tire, put it over the person, douse it with petrol, and then set it on fire. I knew that I was in trouble. And so I did the only thing that I knew that I could do, and I said a prayer. And my prayer went something like this, Dear Father, save me. Amen. <laughs> Prayers don't have to be long. The neatest thing took place, because when I finally said the amen, in the back of that group, someone yelled out and said, hey, I've seen that guy somewhere before. Someone else in the group said, yeah, you're right, I've seen that guy somewhere before. Someone said, yeah, I've seen that guy. That guy's a movie star. It was neat that in the conversation I could continue hearing people. Someone said, yeah, I just saw that guy in the movies. That guy, you know who he is? That guy is Bruce Lee. Man, I got my hands up. <laughs> now you're coming along and saying, man, oom, why share with us a stupid story like that? Because I didn't tell God how to get me out of there. I just said, Lord, get me out of here. And the point is this, is the fact that I serve a God who is still seated upon a throne, high and exalted and lifted up. And that's what Isaiah began to realize in his life as he saw the vision. As he continued to look at the vision, the Bible states that the train of the robe of the Lord filled the temple. I'm not sure what that says to you. And again, I recognize there are many different interpretations of that. But allow me to interpret it my way. I believe that what is being stated here is that if you and I are going to be effective in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ... Every part of our heart, every part of our life needs to be surrendered over into the holiness of God. That we need to live holy lives in such a way that people can sense that there is something different about our lives. And so the train of the robe. The other thing which I notice about this vision as Isaiah is looking heavenward, he notices that there are seraphs or angels that are flying around, each one of them with six wings. In the Hebrew language, the word seraph actually has the idea of light. But the word seraph, the light that it's talking about, it is never direct light. It is talking about reflected light. And as I began to think about it, this is what it came to my mind, is the fact that it is so easy in our culture to come along and be enamored with a human being. So the focus becomes on that individual. We do that with preachers. We do that with singers. We do that with worship teams. But dear ones, hear what I'm saying. No matter how good a person is, the reality is that that person is not God. Our focus as a Christian community has to always be upon the Lord, seated upon the throne, high and exalted and lifted up. Amen? And so the focus has to be upon Jesus Christ. The Bible comes along and tells me this. It comes along and states that any time you and I stand before the presence of God, everything is laid bare. In fact, the Apostle Paul comes, and he's the one that actually makes that comment. Everything is laid bare before the Lord. The, that little phrase, it's interesting, is that there really are three pictures that go with it. And so, the first picture is this. Who can I pick on? Can I pick on you? Yeah, come on up here. You, yeah, you look, you look like a good person to pick on. 
He hasn't done anything. <laughs> All right. You got a picture inside your mind. One of the pictures is the idea of two individuals that wrestle each other. Have you ever wrestled? Uh, yeah. Oh, good. Uh huh. Yeah. What have you wrestled? Um, my brother. Oh, you wrestled your brother. Who won? I did. <laughs> <laughs> you liar. No. <laughs> you got a picture inside your mind now that we get into a wrestling match. As we get into a wrestling match, let's talk about it. Let's take a vote. How many of you think that he's going to win the wrestling match? Raise your hand. You weren't listening to me. How many of you would say that I would win the rest? Okay, good. Why? Because I'm Bruce Lee. <laughs> and so you got a picture. We begin to wrestle one another. As we wrestle one another, do me a favor. Come on over here. Okay, thanks. I hate tall people. <laughs> And so you get a picture in your mind that I come along and somehow or other, by a miracle, I get him in a headlock that there is no ways for him to escape. The spiritual truth is this, is that I hear over and over in churches anymore that because we serve a God of love, there is no judgment at all. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible comes along and states that there is going to come a time that we are going to be in a situation where we cannot escape the judgment of God. Second illustration of laid bare. Should I pick on someone else? No, I'll keep picking on you. All right. The second one is the idea of hunting. Have you ever been a hunter? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, so you have. What have you hunted for? Um, deer. <laughs> uh, you think? I thought you were going to say girls. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So you got a picture inside your mind. So you got a picture. Now, give me your name. Oh, Patrick, you got to picture Patrick now. He's not wearing a sweater. He's not wearing, he's, he's a little African boy. And so in the African context, he, they, he's not wearing anything on the top. He's wearing some skins, and you see his skinny little legs, all right? So, and what we do is that I lived in a place in Africa where we would come along and catch, the, the African boys would love to catch little field mice. And the reason being is that field mice makes a great snack. They would catch a bunch of them, put them in boiling water. The boiling water would take the fur off. Then the little African children, they would take the mouse, the mice or whatever, and take it by the It's all gone. Mm. But the thing that they would love to eat, though, is what is called the sugarcane rat. The sugarcane rats are healthy to eat because they're eating sugarcane all day long. Their bodies get to be around that big. By the time you add the tail, they're around that long. And so you got a picture inside your mind that Patrick and I, we're going out into the bush. I'm giving him a, I'm giving him a spear to throw because I don't trust him with a bone arrow. And so we begin going into the bush. Come on, come on, down, 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 down. We go into the bush. Well, you're good. Get down. As we're going, all of a sudden I notice, I notice that the rat runs by and I say, Patrick, throw the spear. <laughs> You started really good, but that was lousy. Come back. <laughs> All right, come back. We're doing, no, no, we're doing this again. We're doing it again. All right. This is a replay. All right, get it right. And put some sound to it. So we go into the bush. As we go into the bush, I notice a sugarcane rat runs by and I say, throw your spear. <laughs> come here. You may be an all right student, but you're a lousy actor. <laughs> so, and so, by a miracle, he spears that rat. So I come along and I say, put out your hand. Now understand, the African children really don't care what's on the outside because they want to get to the inside. 
And so what they do is that they come along and they take a knife and they open it up and they take all the innards that are there. They place it on an open fire and it begins to sizzle. As it begins to cook, they come and they put salt on it. They put red pepper flakes on it. They put black pepper flakes on it. And it makes a wonderful meal. Spiritual application, though, is that so often what tends to happen in the American culture is that we look at a person on the outside and we come along and say, hey, he or she looks really good on the outside. We assume then that they're all right spiritually. You need to understand that, yes, God looks at the outside, but if he comes along and states, but I also look to see what's inside a person's heart. Amen? There's one more illustration of being laid bare. Let's come along and say that Patrick had done something wrong to me. What they would do back in the olden days is that they would make him come and stand before me, but because he's so embarrassed of what he has done wrong to me, he would bow his head like this. And so what the soldiers would do is that they would take a dagger and they would make it as sharp as possible and they would put it under his chin to force him to come along and to look at me eye to eye. Spiritual application, because if he doesn't look at me and he tries to put his head down, the dagger will go straight through and kill him. The spiritual application is this, is that there is going to come a day that every single person is going to have to face God face to face, eye to eye. Okay, thanks. You need to understand that if I were to come along and leave it there, I would come along. Many people would say, we serve a mean God. But part of the reason why we had this week dealing with the international and the international context and the international church is because, dear ones, we have the greatest message to share with people that in Jesus Christ there truly is freedom and freedom from sin. And so there Isaiah is. He stands in the presence of Almighty God. As he stands in front, everything is laid bare. And as everything is laid bare, Isaiah begins to realize that. Even though he had not committed sins, like murdering someone, I don't even think that he used bad words. I don't think that he even stole a, a, a paper clip or anything like that. But he began to realize that instead of depending upon God for his life and for his ministry, he was depending upon all the advantages that he had as a child. And so he was depending upon himself. And so what happens is that Isaiah then, he comes and he makes confession to the Lord. Coming along and saying, Lord, no longer do I want to do what I do without being focused upon you. And the Bible comes and tells me that anytime you and I come to the throne of God and make confession that the Lord we serve is a gracious and merciful God and he hears our confession and the Bible then comes along and tells me that the Almighty came, sent one of the Sarahs to the altar where there were live burning coals and understand that a symbol of a live burning coal many times is a symbol of the working of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he comes and he touches the lips of Isaiah as a way of saying, now you are consecrated to me. I wrote down some thoughts that if a person is consecrated, that individual will desire more of God. That person will determine to follow God with all he or she has. That person will dig deeper into his word. That person will depend upon God. And in fact, that person understands that in order for him to really be true to God, he needs to die to self and live for the Savior. Now you're saying, well, what does this have to do with anything? It's interesting to me that even on this campus, I hear many individuals coming to me and making statements like this. I want to do great things for God. I want to be a great singer. I want to be a great preacher. But it's interesting to me what happens here, though, is this, is that before God comes along and states, hey, I'm going to send someone out there into the world, 
That individual has to have a clear vision as to who I am. That individual needs to come to the place inside his or her life of saying, hey, no matter what the world throws my way, my focus is still going to be upon the Lord, seated upon that throne, high and exalted and lifted up. And so how do we end a service like this? I believe that Isaiah chapter 6 really is spoken to believers. I think it's being spoken to us as a Christian community. And so because of that, I know that I'm speaking to those that claim to know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. But if you're anything like me, during this time of the semester, it is so easy for me to get bogged down with academics, get bogged down with the busyness of life, that I lose focus of God. But the problem is, is that when I lose focus of God, what tends to happen is then I begin to lose focus on the hurts that are around me, the needs that people have around me, and I become very self-focused. And I believe that it is appropriate at this time of the semester for us to regroup and coming along and stating, Lord, if my vision of you has become dim, I need to get that vision back into focus. And so, dear ones, I'm going to ask that you stand up. We're going to have a time of invitation. I know for some of you it's going to take courage to do this because you're going to have to humble yourself and make confession. But the reality is this, is that if you're anything like me, your vision of God, you still come along, you still claim to know Jesus Christ, so I'm not denying that, but you know that your vision of the Lord has become cold and dim and foggy. And you need to have that vision come crystal clear in your mind and your heart once again.